0: Welcome to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. We are in the book of Matthew, chapter 12, and we just prayed, and now we are going to pick it up right around verse 13. But I'll give you the short background summary, which I usually do because some people aren't here every week on Zoom or in person. Matthew is one of the four Gospels. It's a biography of Jesus, who he was and what he did, and Matthew has an agenda like many writers do. He wants his writers to, readers to understand that, math, that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man, that he is the Jewish Messiah, the King, and the Chosen One that the Jews had been waiting for. He's shown that through the genealogy of Jesus, through the testimony of the Father when Je- Jesus got baptized, and the Holy Spirit descending on him. We'll talk about that tonight. We've seen it in all the miracles, all the sermons of great wisdom, and John the Baptist has testified about him. And now, in chapters 11 and 12, it's time for decision. It's decision time for the Jews. Representing the Jews are the Jewish leaders. Unfortunately, they are hypocrites for the most part, and they are deciding against Jesus. In this text we'll read tonight, they will say that Jesus is satanic. Because if you... We'll talk about why they say that, because they really have no other choice. In any case... Uh, let's pick it up in verse nine, just to give you the flavor of where we are going on from that place. Oh, you know what I forgot to do? Those of you that are here, if you're awake, say amen. amen. Okay, great. And those of you on zoom wave or say amen. Amen. From zoom land, somebody has a sign up going on from that place. We're in Matthew twelve nine. he went into their synagogue And a man with a shriveled hand was there. We covered this last week, looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. Notice that. They asked him, that's the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So it would be a strange Sabbath indeed if God had made the rule, it's a day of rest but it's not lawful to do any healing. We said last week but there, that their rule was, the man-made rule, they had 24, I think it is, chapters uh, in the Mishnah, which is a commentary in the Old Testament, about what you could and couldn't do, what was and wasn't work on the Sabbath. Regarding medicine, they said, you can't practice medicine on the Sabbath unless it's a life-threatening situation. Kind of ridiculous man-made rule. A man with a shriveled hand, the word is dry, it's kind of in a claw-type shape, and uh, so they're looking for a reason to charge Jesus with some crime. So they ask, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Verse 11, he said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? What he means is, on the Sabbath. By the way, it's not life-threatening. You could leave the sheep there, Until the next day after the Sabbath and go get them. But it's your sheep, you get them out. It's the humane and compassionate thing to do. How much more valuable, verse 12, is a person than a sheep? We've seen this again and again in this gospel. Animals are great, they're creations of God, but mankind, women and men, are made in the image of God, different kind of creation. So from the lesser to the greater, if you would do it for a sheep, even though it's not life-threatening, why not do good and heal on the Sabbath? He's sort of answering their question. Then he said to the man, verse 13, stretch out your hand. I want you to notice that we said this last week, that the command is an impossibility. Just as he told the paralytic man, do you remember the paralyzed man? Rise, take up your pallet, and walk. Jesus God sometimes commands things that are, humanly speaking, impossible, and yet if he commands it, guess what? He gives the ability to do it, to stretch out the hand, and we're going to see that it's healed for the man to rise and walk. What had occurred to me this week that's interesting is he gives another command Jesus does at the end of Matthew chapter 28, right around verse 19 and 20, and it's to you And to me, and to the disciples, and all Christians. And guess what it is? Go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples uh, and teaching them everything that I said. Guess what? That may seem impossible to you and me. Some people think, oh, I'm kind of shy around people. I don't feel qualified to witness. If He's commanded us, and, and you are told to witness, guess what? When you do it, He will give you the ability, just like he did the man to rise and walk, or this man to stretch out his hand. The man is probably embarrassed to have his handicap exposed, but God has given the command, Jesus has, he reaches it out, and faith disregards apparent impossibilities. uh, I have in my notes here. So, uh, he heals him, at the place of worship. Yes, it's a Sabbath. It's interesting that he, Jesus, heals him technically without doing any work. Did you notice that? He just says, stretch out your hand. That's all. Four words. No hocus pocus. He doesn't touch the man. Sometimes he touches people, right? Makes mud out of spit and dirt and puts it on the eyes. Sometimes there's very active miracles. Sometimes it's just be healed, his word. He heals with a word. It's not work to speak. So technically they don't have anything to accuse him of, but he does do good because he is compassionate and loving. We'll see that later today as well. So the the hand and the man are completely restored. This is what I call a creative miracle, not creative like an artist or somebody that does artwork, but creative meaning he created a new hand. Sometimes there's reparative miracles where something is repaired, but a hand that's shriveled up can't instantly become whole. So it's creative, God created the world using what? Words. Let there be light. Let there be stars in the heavens and what have you. So it's a beautiful miracle. And we talked about the response last week. That's what these two chapters are about. The response of the Jewish leaders. And it's not good. Having seen a miracle in the worship place of God, the synagogue. Verse 14. And I jokingly said last week, and the Pharisees praised God and got on their knees and declared that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Thankful that an injured, handicapped person was totally healed. That's what I want to see here. Instead, the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus, destroy him, means kill. The word is destroy, but it doesn't mean kill. Isn't that amazing? Why do they want to kill him? I think, number one, they had the market, whoops, cornered in Israel in terms of religion, right? This guy is drawing huge crowds everywhere he goes. He can do miracles, which they can't. He can do miracles, which they can't. He can control nature and tell storms to be quiet, which they can't. I think part of this is jealousy, pride. But they also, I think they sincerely believe that he is evil because they're so entrenched in their in the fact that they're insiders in israel as the religious leaders i think that they think if there was a messiah of god he'd be on our side he'd be our buddy we'd put our stamp of approval on him he's just what we expect that's the problem he's not what they expect and that's what the following passage is gonna cover shortly. so they go out and plot how they might kill Jesus. Does Jesus have omniscience, meaning he knows everything? Yes. Does he know they're going to try to kill him? Yes. Okay, then why this verse? Verse 15. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Let's stop right there. I know there's more to that verse. At first glance, it can sound like he's retreating. He's afraid. There are some people that if they had a ministry and they found out, you know, the authorities, the powerful people in Israel and you're an Israeli, they're they're plotting to kill you. Some people would stop the ministry and go hide or move to Venezuela. Or, well, that's a bad choice, but somewhere. The point is he's not retreating because he's afraid. He is retreating because he doesn't want to unnecessarily make conflict happen because they are going to kill him. It is God's will for them to kill him. It's just two years too early. And he's on a specific time schedule. He's going to ride into Jerusalem less than a week before he's killed on a donkey, which was predicted in Zechariah hundreds of years before this is not the time. So he doesn't want to unnecessarily make conflict happen. So he withdraws. As I said, the rest of verse 15 is encouraging because he doesn't chicken out and he goes and hides in a cave somewhere. A large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. So translation, the ministry continues, just not there because they're plotting to kill him. The time will come when he will offer himself up. Do you remember? Judas turns him in. The Jewish leaders come with some guards, and they say, he approaches them. Do you remember? In the Garden of Gethsemane and says, who are you seeking? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. Do you remember? He comes to them because it's time. It's not time now. So he's going to withdraw to, to avoid open conflict, but the ministry continues. Why not keep preaching to these Pharisees? And maybe they'll, because it's throwing pearls before swine. They would never believe their hearts. are. Not, they're not on the fence anymore. They're hardened hearts to the point, we want to kill this guy. So I want you to notice that a large crowd follows him and he healed all who were ill." Now, do you think that means all? I do, because the word is all. Matthew's not stupid. He could have used the word most, some of the people that were. Can you imagine emptying out hospitals, right? Going down the line, what's your problem? Oh, my knee hurts, this, I got that, I got a cancer. Next, right, take a number. Incredible. He heals all who were ill. Why is this here? And then that verse 16, 17 and following is going to explain why it's here. But look at, so I want you to notice he withdraws. He's still got a large crown. He's healing all who were ill, still doing miracles. He warned them not to tell others about him. That's often what he does when he heals somebody. Go your way, show yourself to the priest, he tells the leper, don't tell anyone else. Isn't that interesting? In a normal promotional marketing sense, you would want to spread the word. The best advertising we always say in business is what? Word of mouth, right? You don't buy a Buick because you see an ad for Buick and you think that's a nice car. You might. But if you talk to the Mulders and the Harkin Riders and the Smiths and they all say the Buick is the best car I've ever had, that's a powerful testimony. Right. Why doesn't he want word of mouth? Because he's healing, doesn't want to bring about this arrest and conviction and death too early. Number one. And number two, he's healing and he's starting to get a reputation as Jesus, the guy that heals people. That's not why he comes to the earth. It's a fringe benefit because he's so compassionate. That's what the verses that follow will talk about. But he can't resist healing people, number one, because he loves and and he's able, compassionate. But that's not his main mission. Even preaching is not his main mission. His main mission is to die on a cross, to take the place of mankind, to reverse the curse from the Garden of Eden. So, uh, he's still healing, and don't tell anybody about me. The time will come, like I said, Matthew 28, go into all the world. Now tell everybody. Verse 17. Now he's, Matthew knows his Old Testament. He's going to quote Isaiah 42. The first four verses. This was to fulfill, so he stopped the narrative now of this happened and then this. He wants the reader to know pause the story. What we just are seeing happening in our story is there to fulfill something that's in the Jewish scriptures that the Jewish leaders certainly should have known. This was to fulfill, let's read the whole paragraph, what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, verse 18. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. It's God talking. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory in his name the nations or it's really the gentiles will put their hope what he's reading and there are other passages in the old testament like this this is one of them that is a little bit of a resume of the messiah there's about a dozen characteristics here we're going to look at them as we do every one of them i want to want you to keep two things in mind refers to jesus and i want to show you why it's surprising to them number 2 as a follower of this jesus who we're supposed to walk as he walked this is also supposed to be our resume in a sense except for one of them but i'll show you okay so he's saying this is a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. First thing, and it's God the Father talking, verse 18. Here is first characteristic, my servant. The Messiah is to be the servant of God. What's a servant? Someone that when the master says, go do this, the servant says, okay. Aye, aye, Captain. There's never any disagreement between the Son and the Father, nor the Holy Spirit. He is God's servant on the earth. One more thing as an overview. Remember, we've said this a lot. The Old Testament contains a bunch of scriptures about the coming one, the anointed one, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of man. There's a lot of different titles for him. Shiloh is another title for the Messiah. They can be divided into two separate categories, and it's rather odd. One category is that the Messiah, this is not one of them, is the Messiah will be a conquering king who will punish evil, who will reign in Israel, listen, forever, who will reward righteousness For the Jews living in the first century, they read that and think that's the one we want. The conquering Messiah, military political leader. Because their country's been taken over by Rome, right? They pay taxes to Rome, Rome controls them, Roman soldiers are everywhere watching everything. They hate that, get out. First thing Messiah is going to do I can hear the Jews talking is kick these Romans out of our country. That's the Messiah they expect. Are they right? Will the Messiah come and be a leader who will th- throw off all Rom- all human government, reward evil, uh, reward good and punish evil? Answer, yes, at the second coming. It's not clear I admit, in the Old Testament, that there's two comings of the same Messiah. Some rabbis wrote about this and said, maybe there's two messiahs. Because the other section of scriptures, Old Testament scriptures, talk about a suffering servant. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, there are other ones. Isaiah 42 is one. Okay. The reason this is here is they've rejected him because he's not going to uh, take over uh, the country and rule like a king. He is not stopping the Romans. He has even said, What about should we pay taxes to Caesar? Render to Caesar what's Caesar's, render to God what's God's. In a way, they see him as a hippie from the 60s, peace, man. But he's anything but that actually so let's look at the scripture now why is matthew putting this in here now because he's being rejected by the jewish leaders the first thing he will be is a servant of god second thing whom i that's god the father have chosen god chose jesus to be his messiah his son, was to lower himself from the lofty, glorious position in heaven and become a human being who will live the perfect, sinless life you and I were supposed to live and die the horrible death you and I deserve. So he's a servant. He is chosen by God himself. Why didn't the religious leaders see this? Because if you were under the yoke of the Romans and you had the choice between this mellow guy, you're going to see very compassionate, very gentle, or the guy that comes in and kicks butt and kicks the Romans out. That's the one we want. That's why Matthew puts this here. My servant, number one, whom I've chosen, number two, the one I love, my beloved. That means that he's serving God. He is chosen of God and God loves him. In fact, God has loved Jesus ever since time began, even before time began, right? In whom I delight. What is that, therefore? It's possible to love someone who's being disobedient or being a jerk. It just so happens Jesus is a servant. He's chosen. He's loved by God, but he, God is also delighted in him. He, God is so perfectly pleased in the perfect life of Christ, that God is smiling when he watches what Jesus says and does. So that all means that God has the stamp of approval on Jesus, the same guy, the religious leaders say, we got to kill this guy. It shows you the contrast, doesn't it? Let's keep reading. Uh, We're in Matthew 12, right in verse uh, 17. Next thing, characteristic, a servant He's been chosen by God. He's loved by God. God delights in him. He's living a perfect life. I, God the Father, will put my spirit on him. Do you see that? God's Holy Spirit will rest upon him. When did that start? Well, it happened in a visual way at the baptism of Jesus. Do you remember? At the baptism of Jesus, um, you the whole Trinity shows up right? Who gets baptized? Second person of the Trinity, son of God. Who speaks from heaven? First person of the Trinity, the father. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, similar to what he says here. Who descends in the form of a dove? The Holy Spirit. What do you know? The whole Trinity shows up when Jesus gets baptized. I want you to notice the whole Trinity just showed up at the end of verse 18. I will put my spirit on him. Did you catch that? I God the Father will put my spirit sec- third person on him second person. People that don't believe in the Trinity, Jehovah's Witnesses, there are many others are fond of saying, you know the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. They're right. However, the the doctrine, the idea of it goes back to Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. I won't go there now, but anyway, There's the Trinity. I'll put my spirit on him. In the Old Testament times, God put his spirit on prophets to speak forth God's word for a limited time. It was not in a permanent indwelling like you have. God now has saved you, and the Holy Spirit lives inside you forever. David is a prophet of God and also a king. He sins with Bathsheba, has Bathsheba's husband killed. Do you remember? They have a baby and the baby dies. And David uh, is repentant and uh, sorrowful about his sin. He says, David does, please, Father, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Could that have happened in the Old Testament? Yes. New Testament, Christians, no way. Permanent dwelling. Okay. So he'll have his Holy Spirit on him. It turns out that everything Jesus does, we're going to take a little doctrinal trip here quickly. The word is kenosis. How many have heard that word before? K-E-N-O-S-I-S. Okay. Sounds like some kind of a disease. I have a little kenosis here, but I got some pills and it'll go away. That's not what it is. Kenosis is the doctrine of that Jesus, and the word means emptying, that Jesus emptied himself of the voluntary use of any of his divine powers. He was fully God in heaven. He came to earth as a man. Is he still God when he's walking around as a man? Yes, fully God, fully man. But he has lowered himself to the point he won't use his own power. He's going to do everything. Listen, this is important for what follows, in the power of the Holy Spirit just the way you and I, if we do anything for God, it's never, it shouldn't be in our own power. It's in God's power, the Holy Spirit's power. Okay. Um, let's see. We already talked about the Trinity. Okay. Mm-hmm. So th- this is all the resume of Christ. I'll put my spirit on him. He will proclaim justice to the nations. We're going to come back to the kenosis thing, the emptying. He will proclaim justice to the nations, the Gentiles. This is Jewish scripture. The Jews should not have been surprised that he was friendly with Samaritans and all people believe. Most Christians, as you probably know, are not Jewish today. They are Gentiles. There are Jewish Christians, Messianic Jews, whatever you want to call it but the majority of Christians are Gentiles. The Jews rejected him. The Gentiles were grafted in. Paul writes about that in Romans. Okay, so what's going on here? He's going to proclaim justice. What is justice? Justice is when, and in our court system, we've kind of lost what that means, haven't we? We got a bad judge or a bad jury, and the guy got off, and everybody knew he did the murder, and... uh, In any case, you can get Johnny Cochran to defend you, but that's another story. Anyway, what's justice? Justice is absolute fairness. God is a God of absolute justice. You can't pay God off. What's fair is fair. And it might surprise you to learn that every single sin, every single bad thing that is ever done or said or thought, every single one, God punishes. One of two ways. Unbelievers, I don't want Jesus. They are punished in Revelation 20, where they will pay for their own sins forever in hell, outside the presence of God and all things holy. Well, what's the other way God punishes sin? All on Jesus on the cross. All of your sins and mine, if you're a believer, and I bet you are, They are all punished, put placed on Jesus, all the guilt, all the shame, all the sin, and he pays for every bit of it. That is the better justice than paying ourselves. He'll proclaim justice, both that there's a coming judgment warning and that there is available to all who will receive him, receive me if it's I'm Jesus, uh, a justice that is much better where I will pay for your sins. He'll proclaim justice to the nations, the Gentiles. Okay, let's keep reading verse 19. He, this is God the Father talking about the Messiah in the third person. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. Remember what they're expecting. The loud, violent overthrow of the king coming to kick butt. On the whole world, so that the Jews reign and the king reigns forever. This ain't in his resume in the first coming, just the opposite. This verse is saying um, he's not going to be taking the kingdom by force, he won't be quarreling or crying out or debating or yelling or screaming. You won't hear his voice in the streets. It's a very gentle, subdued coming. Not without power, tremendous power, but it's not the demonstrative, loud antichrist will be that way, by the way, loud and demonstrative and all of that. This is a whole different kind of a uh, king than the Jews were expecting. And yet Matthew wants you to know it's in the Jewish scriptures. The first coming, this is how he is. In Isaiah 53, it's all about the suffering servant. Talks about his being crucified, Psalm 22. Same thing. Psalm 22 says, they've pierced my hands and my feet. In any case, God wants you to know that the first time, Jesus does not crush all opposition. Here are the Jewish leaders opposing Jesus. Why doesn't he just wipe them out? Could he? Absolutely. Like that. Why doesn't he? Because the first time he comes to die, not in judgment, he comes in grace. That'll come up in a second as well. Okay. Um, Verse 20 needs a little bit of explanation, I'm going to guess. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought about justice through victory. You say, what on earth is that? Okay. What's a reed along the banks of rivers near bodies of water, lakes sometimes grow these things that are kind of hollow and they're plants and they're reeds and they blow in the wind. They're very fragile. You got to be careful with them. It's not like an oak tree. That's very tough okay? And you could take a reed and bend it and break it and do whatever you wanted to it. The shepherds would take a part of the reed that was a little stronger part and cut it so it would be about this long, and they would put holes in the reed and make a little flute musical instrument that the shepherds would play. But everybody knew that as soon as the reed was bruised or broken and air escaped somewhere other than the holes it was worthless and it's just a weed anyway so a shepherd with a bruised reed would just throw it away and nobody would question it it was normal this says whoever this messiah guy is is so gentle that if there's a bruised reed and by the way a bruised reed he's is a metaphor for somebody, a person, just like a smoldering wick is. We'll get to that in a minute. What's a bruised reed? Have you ever met somebody that on the outside they, you know, they try to interact and how you doing? Yeah. But when you get to know them, they'll cry at the drop of a hat and they'll tell you their life story that they have been beaten up by life. Whether it was their parents, they were raped, they were abused some way, they lost everything, you know, financially, they've had all kinds of health problems, people that are bruised reeds, the ones that are weak and meek. Kings usually don't bother with those people. I want powerful generals that can be in my army and support me, not this king. A bruised reed, verse 20, he will not break. The implication is for people, come to me, what did you say in the last chapter, all of you that are weary and heavy laden, and I'll cast you out? No, no, no. I'll give you rest. What Jesus does when he comes into a person like that's life, who's a bruised reed is, he repairs that person and makes them useful. He the master creator makes you the bruised reed into something like a little flute that can be played again by the master and make beautiful music with him uh, changing and healing and using you. A bruised reed he will not break. Remember, military Messiah come in pounding the table loud, violent. Every country has had a violent, pretty much overthrow, right? Right? In, in America, we had the, the war with England, remember? He's not that kind of king. There's Bruce reeds. He's very gentle. Okay, what's a smoldering wick? Okay. In the houses, no PG&E. Those of you that don't live in California go, what's that? The electric company. No electricity. If you want light, you have a little oil lamp with flax as a wick when the wick had really served its purpose for a while and was getting old, it would just, all it could do is smolder. A wick that is putting forth a little flame not only gives light, but it even could give a tiny bit of warmth. But if you've ever been in a house where you blow out a candle and then it just smokes and smokes and smokes, it's like, get that thing outside kind of thing. Most people, when there was a smoldering wick, They would do the same thing with the bruised reed. Get it out of here. Throw it away. Not Jesus. The gentle king, the first time he comes. Um, Let's see. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He's going to fan that wick and do whatever is necessary to trim it and make it useful again. Have you met people in your life, like a bruised reed that the world has beaten up? Have you met people in the same way who it feels like their fire is almost extinguished? Maybe through a health problem, maybe they're just so beaten up. They're so sad. They're so downtrodden. This is the gentle Messiah that God brings the first time. He won't snuff it out till he has brought, there's that word again. I'm still in verse 20, justice through to victory. Now it is a two-pronged justice and victory. Number one, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. There justice was served. One man, fully God and fully man, Jesus Christ was punished for the sins of all who would ever believe in him tremendous suffering, physically, spiritually, mentally, every way you want to say. And his resurrection, uh, that's justice. But what about all the unbelievers? They didn't get punished at all. The second coming, Revelation 20, is the second justice and the second victory. After that is done, we get into Revelation 21 and 22, the eternal state, heaven forever, living in a perfect world. So, this Messiah is not what they expected. That's Matthew's point. No wonder the Jewish leaders are planning to kill him. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They know nothing about the Messiah. Look at the last verse in this little section, verse 21. In his name, that's Jesus's, that's the Messiah's name, the nations, the Gentiles, will place or put their hope And ever since, Gentiles around the world have placed their hope in this gentle Messiah. It's incredible that he, in a way, conquered evil, uh, kicked the devil off the throne for many, right? He's still the God of this world, small g, but he has had this tremendous victory, listen, without an army, never fired a shot, didn't kill anybody. He did it through humility, through gentleness, through love, through compassion, because remember, he, Jesus, reveals the Father. And God, the Father, on the one hand, is, First John, love, compassionate, kind, gentle, patient, uh, merciful, grace, gracious to us. But if that is all your God is, you got an incomplete picture. Because God is also, and this isn't popular to say, but it's biblical, he's a God of wrath against sin. You say those poor people. No, not poor people. The Bible sees sin as the worst disease possible that has to be eradicated. But he's so patient waiting. You say, why doesn't he come back? Because there's still people that are coming to Christ that God intends to save, if you will. So in this passage, we saw the Trinity. We see the resume of the Messiah, very gentle. That's why all the healing, he's fixing bruised reeds. He's fanning, smoldering wicks back so that their fire can be alive again, and they'll give his light. Okay. Immediately following this, we have a demon-possessed man with some extra problems. Look at verse 22. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? That's a a name for the Messiah. Okay, this is a demon-possessed man who is also blind and mute, can't see and can't speak. Most scholars think usually when someone is mute, they also can't hear. So it's the trifecta, right? Um, what was her name? Helen Keller, right? This, this man, and by the way, the scholars usually said in the commentaries, they believed that the blindness and the muteness and maybe the deafness was a result of the demon possessing this guy. So this person is really in the worst possible shape. This is a really, really bruised uh, reed or a really, really smoldering wick. So they bring him this demon-possessed man. Matthew, again, very glibly, doesn't give a lot of detail, just says Jesus healed him. Doesn't tell us how, so that he could both talk and see meaning not just the demon cast out, suddenly he's able to speak again, he can see again. An incredible miracle. Three miracles in one, maybe four if you include hearing, we don't know that for sure. So what's funny is, remember I told you 11 and 12, these two chapters are about the reaction of the Jews. We've covered the reaction of the Jewish leaders, the They'll be back shortly. This is the reaction of most people, okay? And it's gonna take a little explanation. Verse 23 All the people were amazed, astonished. Do you see that? You can't blame them. Demon possessed, blind, mute. This is incredible. If they're honest, they would say, No one, nobody's ever done this before. This is unprecedented power and authority and healing, okay? That's good, they're astonished. If you're not astonished at who and what God is, your God is too small. There's actually a little book called Your God is Too Small. But here comes the bummer. They're astonished and they said, could this be a son of David? Now in English, that sounds like, hey, that's good. They're considering it. In Greek, there's a way to word the sentence where the expected answer is no or negative. So it would be like saying it this way This can't be the son of David, can it? Like, seems like a remote possibility. Why? Because of what I just read. He's gentle, he's healing, it's all amazing. We're astonished by the miracles but it's not what we expected. I want the Burger King Messiah, have it your way. And this guy is not it. This is a more gentle, but still a rejection of Jesus. You might say they're still on the fence, but they're sort of indifferent. They don't know how to take this power was the messiah in the old testament predicted to be able to heal blind eyes deaf ears etc absolutely lame legs as well okay we're still rolling because we got a few minutes before we eat treats and take our break but that's why it's could this be the son of david it expects a negative answer okay so that's the reaction from the general public what about the pharisees the religious leaders what do you mean? What's their reaction? He, he he cast out the demon. The guy that's blind can see and mute, and he can speak. Here it comes, verse twenty four. When the Pharisees heard this, heard what? About, they heard about the miracle and the at least discussion. Could this be the Messiah? Son of David is a messianic or messiah title. What do the Pharisees say? It's only by Beelzebul or Beelzebub, depending on what translation you have, both names are right. The prince of demons, it's another name for Satan, the head demon. It's only by Beelzebub that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus is going to know their thoughts in verse 25 and he's going to answer them we'll do that after the break but I want to talk about why do the Pharisees say this well they hate him yes i know but i want to show you that Jesus has painted them into a corner to where they're out of options they can't say and you notice they don't no he didn't heal the guy's blindness or his mute mouth he didn't cast the demon out it's too obvious that he did. They can't say, Well, we couldn't do that too, because they can't. Okay? They have no other option. They have two options bow down to the sky and go, Look, we don't know who you are, but it seems like you're from God. By the way, in John chapter 3, verse 2, do you know what Nicodemus says to Jesus? We know that he's a Pharisee. In fact, he's the teacher in Israel. Jesus calls him. He says to Jesus privately, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one could do the signs that you're doing unless God were with him. Right on. What's their reaction? The only thing they can come up with is, okay, it's supernatural power, we can't deny that, but it's demonic. He's doing all these really nice, gentle healings and miracles for all these people consistently because he's using the power, keyword, of the devil. In actuality, I told you earlier, how is he doing these miracles? Well, he's God. That's not the right answer. The right answer is he's doing everything in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is going to lead into the discussion that follows. But right now, it's time for our two-minute break. Stretch your your aging bodies, and there's treats back there. Thank you to those who brought them. Those of you on Zoom, I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. We're in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12, And um, we're about to have another confrontation with the Jewish religious leaders. Jesus has just healed the demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And the people are kind of, can't decide, could this be, this can't be the Messiah, can it? Verse 24, the Pharisees accused Jesus of doing powerful deeds by the power of Satan. They are saying that's his power. He is satanic. That's how he's able to do these miraculous things. If you think about it, it doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense. Jesus is going to show them logically, excuse me, that it makes no sense. Verse 25, omniscience, Jesus knew their thoughts. Do you see that? Now, let me give you a scary thought. Jesus knows your thoughts. Jesus knows my thoughts. Yikes. We, You know, we're told to take every thought captive, aren't we? Do you ever find yourself going off in thought land where you, you wake up and go, God, I don't want to think about that. Please focus me where I need to be kind of thing. Just thought I'd throw that in, no extra charge. Knowing their thoughts... Verse 25, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, will fall, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. What's he talking about? This is a a truism, whether it's a family or a kingdom or a business. If there's division in it, it can't last. There has to be a unity, right? And so he's saying, if the kingdom of Satan has some division in it, and I'm using Satan's power to take pe- take demons out of people, that kingdom, Satan's kingdom, is divided. It makes no sense. Why would Satan, who's taken over some territory, a house, if you will, a person, why would Satan let Jesus cast demons out? He's losing ground in the war. So, uh, Yeah, we already talked about that. Okay, so any internal conflict can destroy a kingdom, a city, a business, a household, whatever. So it's illogical, it's impractical for Satan to fight against or weaken his own kingdom. Um, Okay, back to the text. Verse 26, if Satan drives out Satan... Does that make any sense to anyone? Okay, Uh, If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? Very logical. Jesus is God in human flesh. So besides being powerful and beautiful in terms of love and compassion, don't miss the fact that God is way smarter than we are. We shouldn't be surprised that God, Christ has this sort of incredible pinpoint wisdom, right? Right? And verse 27, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, this is an Old Testament word for the head demon, Beelzebub, Beelzebul, same person, by whom do your people drive them out? In other words, there may have been some Jews who claimed to be um, exorcists, they had the ability, whether they did it or not, or said they did, we don't know. But if they did, he's saying, by the way, some of your people cast out demons. Which power are your people using to do the same thing you just saw me do? And by the way, do they throw in blind eyes and mute mouths? It's kind of ridiculous. By whom do your people drive them out? In other words, so then they will be your judges. Jesus is saying that the, by the way, we're leading up to a controversial thing. I just want to warn you, and it's the unpardonable Sin, The unforgivable sin. Have you ever heard this? Okay. Have you ever worried? Did I? In 1994, last week, did I commit? We'll talk about that too. The unforgivable sin. Because they're doing it in this passage. I'll show you why. Um, But if, okay, so uh, verse 28, but if it is by the Spirit of God, which is the Holy Spirit, key thing, remember that, that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. For what reason? Because remember he read, we read Isaiah 42, which says, I will put my spirit upon him. Jesus there tells you, I was right earlier, first time ever I've been right. But anyway, that Jesus is doing these miracles in the power of, yielded to the power of, using the power of the Holy Spirit. If, I, if it's by the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit that I drive out demons, parentheses, and it is, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, it's here. It doesn't mean it's their kingdom. They're far from it. They're on the outside looking in, right? What they have done is say, we can't deny some serious spiritual power there, but it's demonic. The Holy Spirit is demonic. That's what they're saying. Keep that in the back of your mind. And I'll show you why that's unforgivable. And there's many reasons. Okay. Or again, verse 29, he's still debating them. How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his goods or possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. In other words, um Brian Allman is here tonight. And some of you don't know who he is. I'm like, I'm sorry for embarrassing you, Brian. I won't even look in your direction. He's bigger than me. He's taller than me. He outweighs me by, I don't know, 40 or 50 pounds. I I guarantee you he's way stronger than me. He has beams in his patio that he put up by himself that I couldn't lift with three other people. But anyway, if I wanted to rob his house, I would need to be stronger than him somehow in order to tie him up and then take his goods. The point he's making is, in the parable, in the story, the house is this demon-possessed guy, we'll call him, you guessed it, Harold. Harold was demon-possessed. He was blind. He was dumb. They're saying he's doing it by Satan. Now he's going to give them another um, idea, and that is this. If I'm going to enter that strong man's house, don't I have to be stronger than Satan who has this guy possessed, blind, and mute, and maybe deaf? I would have to be stronger than Satan. They know doctrine that no one, listen, is stronger than Satan, except God. So, hello, make the little math equation. Only God would be stronger than Satan. Jesus just was stronger than Satan, clearly, and cast this demon out. Guess who Jesus is? Figure it out, right? That's what he's saying. Get a clue, we would say today, right? How can you enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless you first tie up the strong man? you got to be stronger than somebody to tie him up. I couldn't tie up Brian. He'd probably tie me up. And anyway, uh, then he can plunder his house. Okay, so that's another way of proving to them, I'm stronger than Satan. Figure it out. There's only one person that is. It's God. Look at verse 30. Whoever's not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, the reason for verse 30 is that there is no third position. There is no, I believe in Jesus. She doesn't believe in Jesus. I'm kind of in the middle. I, I'm, I'm neutral. I'm, I'm, I'm straddling the fence here on Jesus. No, you're not. We said this either last week or maybe two weeks ago, that if your car stalls on the railroad tracks at midnight in the rain, and you're trying to start your car and, and here comes here comes the train, right? Johnny Cash, I hear the train is coming. Oh, the train is coming and you realize I've got very limited time to make a decision here. I either need to get out of the car and run and my car will be destroyed or stay with the car and try to start it so I can save the car and me, right? It would be stupid to think, well, there's a third option. I'm just not going to make a decision. I'm not going to run, but I'm not going to start the car. Guess what? Boom! Right? He's saying, "Whoever's not with me, who's with him? All who believe in him, we are with him." Even the neutral person, not the atheist who's you know very very adamant about his atheism, just the neutral nice guy. That, yeah, Jesus, if that works for you, Jeff, that's great, but it's just not for me. I think he was a great teacher. I'm not willing to commit my life or time to reading his stupid Bible, it's so outdated. And that is not neutral, it's a decision. If you're not with me, you're against me. Whoever doesn't gather with me scatters. Even by doing nothing, that's a decision on the railroad tracks and with Jesus. Every human being, when they get to heaven, will be judged according to one, thing what did you do with the lord jesus christ the only right answer is he became my lord and my savior and every other answer even i thought he was pretty good doesn't cut it for god for christ okay so he's placing them in the other camp The anti-Jesus camp. They know they are, but they're trying to act like they're not. Okay. And so I tell you, verse 31, this is pretty amazing. This is the grace and the mercy of God. Watch. Every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. We'll come back to that. That's an amazing statement. But... Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come, period. It's an eternal sin. There is no forgiveness for it. What the heck is going on here? He even said, first of all, let's take it from the beginning, every um there it is verse thirty one Every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven that's we could spend a week on that a, a month of Bible study. every kind of sin except murder he doesn 't say that except child abuse, rape, grand larceny, whatever you want to say, wife beating all the worst possible husband beating even worse um God. God's grace is big enough to forgive any sin. That's why whosoever will may come. That's in the Bible so that someone won't say, I'm a, I am was a mass murderer. I'm in prison now. There's no hope for me with Jesus. I, I, I've already done too much damage. Anyone can be saved. The apostle Paul before he was the Apostle Paul, was Saul, who was Saul of Tarsus. He was going around like a, Christ, a Christian hunter, finding Christians, getting him killed or placed in prison, whatever the case may be. You would think God would go, well, too bad for you. He's forgiven. Any sin can be forgiven. That's the grace, the kindness of God. But the question is not that. The question is, but why is this such a big deal to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? First of all, what does that mean? It means to say what God did in Jesus Christ was of the devil. It wasn't done in the power of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, who would say that? Well, the Pharisees just did. Most modern people wouldn't come out and say those words, would they? They would just say, yeah, I just don't believe the Jesus thing, right? I, I don't believe he ever lived. I believe he was probably a good man, and this is a lot of some made-up stuff. And Think about that. What they're saying is that the gospel, Jesus, is a lie, right? And th- who wrote the Bible? by the way, the Holy Spirit. Yes, John wrote John, and Peter wrote First and Second Peter, and yes, Ezekiel wrote Ezekiel, but the Holy Spirit wrote every word as well. To say I don't believe the Bible, to say I don't believe in Jesus, I don't believe the gospel, I, is to say it's a lie. I'm calling, even though they wouldn't say it this way, God a liar. The Holy Spirit is a liar. Okay, so what's so wrong with that, you say? And the reason you might think that is because he says a weird thing here. Anyone, verse 32, who speaks a word against Jesus will be forgiven. Did you see that? That's amazing. You can speak a word against the Son of Man and be forgiven, not against the Holy Spirit. Why? Okay. Imagine a disease, a, a, a pandemic not COVID, something really, really worldwide that's killing hundreds and hundreds of millions of people, billions of people. And a doctor comes up with one cure. There's thousands of people trying to find cures and research is going on like crazy people are dying. They find this cure, one cure. And you have the disease. And you say, I'm not taking that. Is there any hope for you if you don't take the one antidote for the problem? No. Okay, you say, but I thought Jesus is the antidote on the cross. He is. From God's viewpoint. From man's viewpoint, zero people on planet Earth ever came to Jesus on their own ever no one not you not me no one ever comes to Jesus on their own to do so is to say i realize i'm a sinner i realize there's a god i'm separated from him i need jesus christ john 6:44 jesus says no one listen to this exclusive command a, a, a statement no one can come to me unless The Father who sent me draws him. Oh, that's the way you come? Yes, how does the Father draw people? John 16, you know what Jesus says? The Holy Spirit whom I will send, listen, will convict the world of sin. Until the Holy Spirit, that's the only way God does it, convicts you that you're a sinner and you grieve about your sin and you want a solution and I can't be good enough and, I need a Messiah, you would never say those things unless the Holy Spirit was drawing you. If you have negated that possibility, said, no, I won't take the only antidote medicine, you've left yourself no other way. But this is not a one-time slip of the tongue. It's a lifelong, ongoing To death, settled disposition about the Holy Spirit, God, Jesus, Bible, gospel, salvation. What do you mean? I mean, listen, Saul of Tarsus committed this sin by saying Christians are evil, we got to kill them all, and I'm gonna go look for them. Zealous for that position, wasn't he? And yet, God's so merciful what happens? He draws him, right? Jesus speaks from heaven, blinds him to get his attention, and you can bet that that day was not the first time the Holy Spirit was starting to do this to Paul. I think it was weeks, months before that, God was tugging via the Holy Spirit on his sleeve about his sin, about everything. Okay, to reject the clear testimony about Jesus, it is bad. But to reject the Holy Spirit is fatal. Um, okay, so what's the difference? Okay, um, and by, this, by the way, this is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. that The Pharisees just said, he does this miracle stuff, but it's all by the power of the devil okay? The Holy Spirit, that shows such a hardened heart, the Holy Spirit can't penetrate that heart because they won't allow it. They don't believe. Um, A settled disposition all the way to death. It is possible to have this position until you're on your deathbed, and in grace, God might just get a hold of you and draw you, and suddenly tears start running down your face, and you realize I'm about to die, and I'm a sinner, and I, I don't know God. Jesus, if you're real, come into my life, and you breathe your last. Look at the thief on the cross. No Bible school, no church. Did he get baptized? No, there was no time. Saved. He's the only person Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise today. The only person Jesus says, you're saved. It's amazing. That's grace. That late in the game. Jesus could have said, you should have thought of this 10 years ago, Harold, too bad for you. Grace, gentle, beautiful. So um, anyone, listen, who rejects the Holy Spirit won't seek forgiveness, won't be aware of their own sin. They'll think they're good enough some other way. They'll think they're not that bad. I'm not as bad as a mass murderer or that rapist guy or Saddam Hussein or whoever. I'm not that bad. Saul, God grades on a curve. They will never seek God. Romans 3, no one seeks God. No one does what is good. Well, then how do people find God? The Holy Spirit draws them. You negate the Holy Spirit, the one antidote, there's no hope for you. Um, Let's see. They won't seek forgiveness. They'll only be in unbelief. Um, Yeah, we already talked about that. Okay. Ah, so one more thing about the unforgivable sin. If you're worried that you committed it, you didn't commit it. How do you know? Because you wouldn't be worried. The fact that you're worried, you're concerned, oh, did I make God angry? Did I insult God? You would never care about that stuff. I have two friends I grew up with that are atheists now. Knew them both in high school. One was my roommate. Great guys. They're both atheists. They don't care. They insult God. In fact, they do insult God on their Facebook pages. I had to unfriend them. It was so disgusting to me. They don't care. They're not worried about their sin. Blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I'll do it again and again and again. Ha, ha, ha. If you're worried that you did it, you didn't do it that shows you have the Lord in your heart. Okay. Um, Let's see. There are scholars who believe, just to give you the other side, not a lot, but there are scholars who believe that this sin could only be committed while Jesus was on the earth. The reasoning is he looked like a man, he acted like a man, he was a man. It's understandable that somebody might blaspheme Jesus, just a regular guy, or so it seemed. But since then, some scholars say, it's impossible uh, to, uh, I should say it this way, that you can blaspheme Jesus the same way you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I don't know that you can make that distinction. To me, it's pretty clear this is an unforgivable sin. The blasphemy of the Spirit, of the spirit verse 31, will not be forgiven in the future any time. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but if you speak against the Holy Spirit, you will not be forgiven. Here comes the end, verse 32, either in this age or in the age to come. Because you might be thinking, well, maybe there's a second chance sometime, and the answer is never, ever, 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 right? Okay. Now Jesus is going to talk about trees. And if you think that comes out of left field, you're wrong. He's talking about the Pharisees and believers and the fact that there's a necessary connection between the tree and the fruit. He said it earlier, you will know them by their fruits. The the product that their life produces what product is the are the Pharisees lives producing in the Jews we read it at the end of chapter 11 remember heavy burdens we, people are weary trying to keep up with all these man-made rules they're hypocrites and what have you they steal widows houses we learn elsewhere they're whitewashed sepulchres they're snakes he calls them sons of the devil in John 8 verse 33 make a tree good and its fruit will be good or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad for a tree is recognized by its fruit. He's saying, take a look at my life. The blind see, is that good or bad? Is that good fruit or bad fruit? Good. Lame people can walk. The dead are raised. Um, I'm feeding the multitudes. I'm Uh, repairing people's lives. I'm giving of myself freely. There's no ulterior motive. I don't drive a a Rolls Royce. And remember last week, they were picking grains of wheat in the field and eating them. Meaning what? They're not rolling in dough. That's a bad pun with the wheat, isn't it? They're not rolling in money. Um, Okay. Uh, do we want to go there now? Yeah, we probably should. Uh, what kind of a king is Jesus? In that era, kings were kind of all had the pride thing going on. It was common that uh, you would never knock on the king's palaces. I'm here to see King Donald or whoever. You can't do that. You don't come to the king unless he summons you. By the way, if he does summon you, the rule was you bow before him, and did you know this? You back out of the room walking backwards, because you don't want to turn your back on the king. That's an insult. That's the way kings were, not King Jesus. He's so gentle. King Jesus has children on his lap, King Jesus is spending time with the poor and the downtrodden and the sick and the all the outsiders. Jesus is the king from heaven, who is in Daniel 7, he's royalty, the son of man, he's leading the host of heaven, that's the second coming. But here on the earth, oh, the other room was, did you know this? In meeting a king in those times, you weren't Ever supposed to look the king in the eye. You just look down to show that you are submissive, that you know that you're less than he is. I was telling a friend of mine on the phone, we were talking about egos of you know famous people. Um and Diana Ross, in her (laughs) contract, had a provision that you, the producer, have to tell all the stagehands and the musicians and the lighting people and the sound people and the, everybody, don't make eye contact with Miss Ross. Don't look at her, give me a break. Anyway, not Jesus, he makes eye contact. He has children on his knee, he's touching lepers. Jesus would never say, do you know who you're talking to? How dare you talk to me like that? A king would say that, not Jesus. It's a whole different kind of a king. It's not the king they're expecting. Um, In our age, it's so easy to offend people. Christians ought to be the same way. We ought to be as humble as he is. Um, People like Paul, we talked about. How about King David? Adulterer, murderer. We could add other stuff forgiven. That's the beauty of Christianity. Anything can be healed with this one medicine. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to father except by me. What's that? An exclusive claim to be the only way to heaven. There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. One antidote. Beautiful. Um, the most likely people to miss the gospel, not always, but most likely are the religious people. You know why? I've already got it. Who needs Jesus? I'm, I'm living up to a certain standard. God has to bless me. Does he? The uh. Yeah, we already talked about that. Okay. Let's keep rolling, shall we? Are you still awake? Say amen. Amen. Good. Sometimes, you know, you see one. (laughs) Not tonight. Okay, on Zoom, are you still awake? Amen from Zoom land. I love that sign. Okay, so we're talking about trees now, the the result of his life. And since then, by the way, the tree has produced, uh, D. James Kennedy wrote a book, I can't remember the title, something like, What If There Was No Jesus on Planet Earth? And he goes into the fact that most colleges, most hospitals, most orphanages, you go down the list, started out Christian, including, by the way, Harvard, Yale, they're not now. They were. The fruit makes him a good tree. Verse 34, Walter, Walter Martin used to read this verse and say, if your Jesus is just kind of a gentle, wimpy guy, you have the wrong Jesus. Because you can't say, verse 34, in a wimpy voice, you brood of vipers, (laughs) right? What's a brood? A family, a bunch of snakes, poisonous snakes, you bunch of poisonous snakes. I think he said it with force. How can you who are evil say anything good? Meaning what? They're bad trees. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of out of the abundance of of the heart, a mouth speaks. What you say is indicative of what's in your heart. There's no hiding it. A good man, verse 35, brings good things out of the good stored up in him. He's talking about himself and about believers who have been changed by him. An evil man brings evil things, like plotting the murder of an innocent man, for example, maybe, brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every idle or empty word they have spoken. Now, he's talking about who? The bad fruit, the bad trees. They have to give an account. They'll answer for everything they said, did, or even thought not you. Your sins, your idle words have all been forgiven. There will be an award ceremony for believers, but your sins will not be judged at the final judgment. It's already been done. Um, So he's telling, he's warning them, everyone's going to have to give an account on the day of judgment, that's Revelation chapter 20, for every empty word they've spoken be careful what you say. By the way, what you say ends up being important in Christianity. Romans 10, Paul says, for if you believe in your heart that Jesus, that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with your what? Mouth. Very important that we publicly make a testimony about Christ. Um, Just about out of time. I'm trying to read notes and the text and figure it all out here. Um, But Jesus has nothing but good fruit in his uh, life to speak of, and they have nothing uh, that's good at all. In Matthew, the words brood of vipers comes up again and again, and it's always the religious leaders that he's talking about. Um, The mouth reveals what's in the heart. Okay, just about out of time. Let's see. Um, idle and wasted words. Last thing, and we'll close with this. We have an epidemic in America right now. It's not a physical sickness. It's in the churches. And we call it Christianity light, L-I-T-E. What do you mean? Bud light is Bud, Budweiser, watered down. Pepsi light is Pepsi watered down. Christianity light is Christianity Watered down to the point that it's almost meaningless. We don't preach sin or death or judgment or wrath of God or repentance. We just make everything positive here. Like the guy that blinks a lot on TV, whose initials are Joel Osteen. He, <laughs> all positive, Christianity, light, give the people what they want. You know what Paul wrote to Timothy? In the last days, People will want their ears tickled. There's a lot of ear ticklers out there. The unfortunate thing is they're very large churches. Why do you bring this up? Those are idle and wasted words from those preachers. They'll be judged by those words. Um, Jesus' critics think they're assessing him, and he is judging them based on their own words, just the opposite. Let's leave it there, and we will pick it up next week, and we'll talk about uh, an adulterous generation, and we'll talk about signs and wonders, miracles, next week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. We could be in your word. We love you. When we see the gentleness of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is so patient and so kind, and he loves the weak and the meek and the mild and the humble, we we just love him even more, God. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that, whether we knew it or not, drew us to a point where we mourned over our sins, we believed in the Lord Jesus, and were saved. And now he lives evermore in our hearts to purify us, convict us of sin, make the Bible more clear, and give us boldness, God. Help us to remember it's the same Holy Spirit inside of us that was inside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to do your will wherever your spirit leads us, God. Thank you for these truths and for salvation. We pray all these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for being here. Make sure you say hello to someone that you don't know. And those of you on Zoom, thank you for being here. God bless. We'll see you next time.